Good morning, this is Central providing your programmes on the Midlands transmitters of the Independent Broadcasting Authority. I can only assume that, at this point in proceedings, there is clearly a disturbance in the force, because I've looked low and low for the Eurovision videos of Melody Festival in 1993 and have come up blank. Oh well, just means I'll have to miss them then. Oh Mr Phil, you can VPN in and see it on SVT Play, you know. Curses Alexia. Mr Phil goes and watches said Melody Festival for two hours. Well that was worth two hours of my time and no mistake said no Eurovision fans ever. No wonder it's not on YouTube and they've hidden it away. This was in the era where they knocked out half the field in the first round of Judah voting, and then show their original performances and have a new innovation for Sweden, televoting, decide the winner in the final round. For reasons that are not entirely clear, they played very short snippets of the other four songs and a whole minute of this. Now, far be it from me to say that SVT were biased towards one song, but it does seem very peculiar. It also didn't work. It finished fifth of five and in a boring field that is some effort. I don't think it's going to spoil anything to tell you that even the voting sequence was boring as fuck in this contest. The top five were exactly the same across the board, apart from Ignor Sherping who swapped out fourth and fifth places, and it becomes very repetitive very quickly. The runner-up was this. sung by non-Swede Nick Borgen. Despite being second across the board and getting 57,500 votes, it was a massive hit in Sweden being the 17th best-selling single of 1993 and was on the charts for 23 weeks, with 14 of those being at number one. As a side note, the fact that it had an English title was a bit controversial as SVT had laid down a rule saying that the songs would only contain Swedish, despite the international rules allowing a bit of English and there were murmurs it would be disqualified. It wasn't. It wouldn't have mattered anyway because it didn't win. Biss did. Arvingener, and that is how it's pronounced, walked the jury scores, getting a maximum 56 points but in raw votes it finished just over 13,000 ahead on total televotes. This must be tempered with the fact that they and Nick Borgen were also shit tons ahead of everyone else, getting 77% of all the telephone votes between them, again telling you just how bad this Melody Festival was. The song is about the titular Eloise and Casper, the lead singer, wishing he'd never broken up with her, and if he rings the bell, wondering if she'll open the door. Yes, that, just not as filthy. The song ends by Casper singing that their love is worth a higher price. I can't imagine that, Casper. Have you seen the cost of things in Sweden? When it got to Mill Street, it was installed as one of the favourites, freely quoted at 10 to 1, presumably because Sweden in it. But there'd be more to it than that. It's a song that has a catchy hook and is clearly written for the juries, which is lucky as they're the only people that can vote for it. Another thing that I notice is that from the country that literally invented Styling O Consulting, the wardrobe mistress seems to have had some sort of aneurysm when giving the boys fashion advice in Stockholm. They're dressed in powder blue jackets with Arvingener written on them in a sort of word cloud form at the front, and couple that with picture style large neck jackets, and if you don't have an astigmatism before viewing it, you certainly need to nip down to your local opticians after it. I guess it's to fit in with the 50s vibe that the song gives off, and I'm only guessing at that because the two guitarists are carrying 50s guitars and it has a sort of rockabilly dance band sound behind it, but I can find no evidence to prove it, so let's say it is. It's a very competent three minutes with some light choreography, which all the boys do in time with each other, 
but it's all been thought out to ensure that the boys don't have to think about anything else other than that. Coming from one of the most boring national selections ever held ultimately meant that the juries in the international final had a lot of other songs that they could put above this one, and indeed all of them put at least one more above it. It did score three tens though, and some higher than average ones to end up in 7th place with 89 points. The songwriters would go on to have more success at the contest, as indeed would Arvingener. Well, they would have the seminal... If someone from another planet time-travelled back to Earth in, say, the early to mid-90s, their senses would have been assaulted by everything Irish all over the goddamn place. Being from the Emerald Isle was totally the thing to be and all the cool kids were trying it out. That even extended to the Eurovision Song Contest, where they broke their four-year streak without winning the damn thing with the sainted Celinda Martin. Why you indeed, Linda, is the question Sonia asks herself daily, one would assume. Anyway, RTE were basking in their own reflective afterglow of winning the contest and held their usual national selection in 1993. They got the smuggest Irishman in the world, Pat Kenny, to grease his way through this piece of television in such a way that if he had a cap, he'd probably doff it to the viewer in reference and thank them for choosing to watch RTE this evening. That final would be held, ironically enough, at the Point Theatre Dublin in a foreshadowing of the many, many years to come. There were eight songs selected by RTE to be performed on the night, but in truth only one of them was any good. That's not me being an old curmudgeon on this occasion. A glance at the scoreboard shows that nine out of the ten regional juries put your winner in first place, and only the Cavan jury placed it second. That runner-up got 79 points. It was a total procession. Show no emotion, my feelings locked inside myself an island, try to take my heart and hide. I built a wall around me, afraid of letting go. But suddenly an open door I never saw before. In your eyes was, it says on the internet, written by the personable Jimmy Walsh of Irish stock living in New York, and it took him a whole 45 minutes to convince Neve Kavanagh to sing the song because she didn't want to enter the contest to start with. Then she heard the song. That's one expensive call back in late 1992, let me tell you. Neve had a couple of careers. She was, by day, a teller at the Allied Irish Bank, but by night, she transformed herself into a songstress singing three of the songs on the Commitments album, including this one. and getting to the final five to actually star in the damn film, and spent a couple of years with the group off the record. No, me either, before being thrust into the national spotlight. The advantage of singing in your home country is that you can get public transport to the contest, and Neve got the train to the contest in Mill Street, and she was met by a stream of press and fans at the station at either end of the journey, and it still shocks me that the literal definition of a one-horse town has a station, and when presented with the fact that she was favourite to win the contest, she smiled coyly and said, I'll deal with that when it happens. Supreme Confidence or Chutzpah, you decide. In an interview she did with RTE later, she said that the three minutes of the actual performance were a blur as she was in the moment, calm down dear, it's hardly the World Cup, but that her next memory is walking back into the green room where she was roundly applauded by all and sundry. The voting was the next thing and Neve freely admits she didn't expect to win and, halfway through the voting, it seemed as though she would do well. They got to four or five from the end, and only at that point does it dawn on her that they could actually win the thing. As any Eurovision fan worth their salt will know, the Maltese jury couldn't be contacted first time round, and so, with a lead of 11 points, she had to be calmed down and brought back to earth with a bump when she was told that, in fact, it was not all over and she needed another point. 
I didn't care who won as long as it was over. Yeah, that's what we said as well. I believed her, because looking at the split screen of the voting, and that was a thing in 1993, she looked a nervous wreck. We all know how the Maltese jury voted that night, and therefore cue immediate celebrations from the entire Irish delegation, and then she remembered she had to sing the damn song again. The aftermath of the contest wasn't great. She signed to Ariston Records via one Mr Simon Cowell, but when he left they dispatched her to Nashville to record an album. They were paying her money but she wasn't enjoying recording, so she went and started live performing with her husband instead. When she came back to the contest in 2010, she ended up in 23rd place, but that didn't matter because Ireland got back to the final for the first time in four years and that was good enough for her. She still has a successful career in singing, though I do wonder if she longs for the days where she'd count punts for a living. Not a euphemism. Now I'm not going to cast any aspersions here, but, and say this quietly, the next song, Luxembourg's final song ever, was entry number 666 in the contest's history. Sign of the devil? Yeah, but in this case, shorthand for crap as well. Luxembourg had become the middle-aged man of Eurovision, starting off all virile and young and enthusiastic, but in its later stages letting itself go a bit and loosening its metaphorical trousers to such a degree that by 1993 they decided it was all too much trouble and this would be their final attempt at winning the Grand Prix, but they and us didn't know that yet. As had become usual, they chose their songs internally and the band Modern Times, ho the irony, were chosen with their song Donnez-moi une chance, French-language title, Luxembourg-ish language song. This is a song that stepped right out of the 80s, mullet-haired guitarists and drummers and a singer in Simone Weiss who's playing the role of disinterested female singer number 297 to great effect. I think it tells you everything you want to know about this song that the director decided to do shots of the audience and shots of the orchestra instead of focusing on the acting parts of this song because he got as bored as the rest of Europe. That audience, by the way, looked like they were being forced to watch and listen to this song with the pain of death. At least the viewing public had a choice. They could have wandered off and done something else. The audience in Mill Street looked like they'd locked the doors and said, you are going to watch them whether you like it or not. So the singers were bored, the audience in the milking parlour were bored, the director got bored, and it may shock you to learn the juries were bored of it after about 25 seconds as well. Except in Malta, who, if you remember the voting, were called in last after Unproblem Technique, and they thought it was the second best song of the night and bumped its score up from a Slovenian 1 point to a massive 11. Would it be churlish of me to question the legitimacy of that jury score? Those 11 points left it in 20th place. RTL had had enough. They sulked off, vowing never to return. A promise they have so far kept. Our reluctant writing team have already gone through Slovenia in painful detail, but to refresh your memories, here's the first introduction of December Me to tell you what you've missed. Let me check out whether there was an Ema or something similar in 1993. Thank God there was. And I actually know some of the songs from it because they did badly in convention song contests in the 90s. of the genre all. None of them carried the Slovenian banner on home soil in Ljubljana though. That honour went to the Inix band, or in English the Onex band. qualificatia the other week and the people who were organising the qualificatia actually won the qualificatia so it can happen 
Anyway, would you believe it, but Slovenia only went and won their own contest. Amazing, isn't it? Thanks, me. See you later. Yes, the Slovenes won their own pre-selection. Who would have thought that would happen, said sarcastic fans across Europe if Twitter had been invented in 1993. But off they went to Mill Street nonetheless. It's safe to say that out of the three countries that were bombing themselves into oblivion, they had escaped virtually intact. On stage, though, I'm not sure what the band were going to ever achieve in a contest above being there, really, which was a feat in itself. This is the first in a depressingly long line of Slovene songs that have either been criminally underscored... Or just criminal. Your lead singer is in a multicoloured jacket, which is sadly the high point of this song. And the three backing singers look like they don't quite know what they should be doing in the background, and it's all rather forgettable in a contest context. The jury didn't exactly throw the sympathy their way either. It scored nine points and only one from any of its neighbours, Bosnia and Herzegovina in this case, to relegate Slovenia at their first attempt, a fate that would befall them in peaceful times as well. Finland is a very cold country, which at time of recording is immediately worth a couple of points. It's baking here at the moment. I'm just not quite sure how much there is really to say about Katri Helena. You have an incoming message from Percentage Random Adjective Percentage Writing Team. Message begins. Me, 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 let me do it. Me, 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 me. This sounds very much like an offer I should refuse. <sighs> How much of a Katri Helena fan are you? Let's use this simple test. How many Eurovision entries has Katri Helena recorded? A. Who's Katri Helena? B. 2. One about Bobby Moore. And the other one about going to the loo. C, eight, if you include a further six attempts in Eurovision, including this one also from 1993. D. 6,943 if you include all her cover versions, including this frankly heroically compiled montage.
So if you're mostly D and you want to join the Capture Helena cover versions of Stuff Club, simply sell a tape of 20 pence coin to a postcard, that's just one penny for every point she scored in 1993, and send it to the Capture Helena cover versions of Stuff Club. The only rule of Capture Helena cover versions of Stuff Club is that we talk a lot about Capture Helena cover versions of Stuff. As you will know by now, we've already covered Bosnia once in the pre-selection podcast, so once again here's December me doing sterling work introducing Bosnia and indeed Herzegovina. Bosnia and Herzegovina would be first on the stage and them just turning up was something of a minor miracle. They were in the height of the bloodiest war the continent had ever seen at that point. The very fact that Bosnia and Telly not only decided at no notice to hold a national final, but received songs to the damn thing should tell you anything and everything you need to know about Eurovision. Here was a country that had been independent for, at the time of the national final, 11 months. Recognition of itself being an entity was non-existent, let alone getting anyone else to think it would exist as a functioning, if highly disjointed state much beyond the end of hostilities. And the jury's still out on that fact even now, but that's not for this podcast. At the start of that final, your presenter, Izmeta Kravac, opened windows in the studio set, presumably to show that Bosnia was open to the world highly symbolic. Eleven songs were slated to be performed on the 28th of February in Sarajevo, but only ten groups actually ended up being performed in the studio. The eleventh, this one, was performed on VT because the fighting was so severe that the band couldn't get to the studios. And when Nina's video was played, Ismeta opened the windows again. Strong stuff. For a country that's being bombed to shit, you'd expect a significant proportion of those 11 songs would be slow and a bit ploddy, but hell no, not a bit of it. This is a national final that stands on its own even now as running the gamut of musical styles that a proper Yuga Vizier would have been proud of, and to do it justice, here's a proper reprise of all 11 songs. Believe me, that 110 seconds you've just heard doesn't do this final any justice at all. To get to an actual result, there was clearly the need for a jury who deliberated but never published any results. It's said that this, by future Bosnian representative Alma Karadic, came second. In truth, no one cared. The first song of the night was the one they picked and there was no backstabbing or catcalling, just pure unbridled happiness from the other nine acts that were on the stage. Bosnia, je noća su Bosni, 
Mohamed Fazlajic and his chums formed a band named after him, Fazla, while they were in the Bosnian army during the siege of Sarajevo. A long-forgotten article on the BBC's culture website now takes up the story for me. Mohammed and his band Fazla didn't expect to win with their song For All the Pain in the World. We were the youngest competitors, he said, but he knew it had one strength, the lyrics, written by a famous Bosnian songwriter, Faradim Pekikoza, who they somehow convinced to get involved. It's about me sending my love to a woman who's a refugee outside the country telling her we won't give up, Fazla says. His girlfriend, now wife, was indeed living outside the siege of Sarajevo at the time. It's a bit bleak compared to your average Eurovision entry, isn't it? The original writer asks. We'd been in a siege for 300 days, Fasler replies. What else would we be singing about? It might not be typically Eurovision, but it's certainly what Europe would almost expect and demand for a war-torn country with a war-ravaged singer to sing about on stage. The next step, though, was getting out of Bosnia. From what I can piece together, they all ran headlong across a field while they were being shot at... Cheers me, only one more to go. After qualifying in Ljubljana and after some seriously dodgy voting, the Bosnians then had to face the press in Mill Street after their first rehearsal, which, having seen footage of it, is laden with emotion as you would expect. The press tried to ask all the usual loaded questions, but they were batted away by Izmeta now in her guise as head of delegation, and they did say that they had not been able to contact their relatives and didn't know whether they were dead or alive. This certainly has parallels with what's happened in 2022, but also serves to remind the YouTube generation that this contest has been here before. On the Saturday night, as you would expect, the band got a massive round of applause before the start of the singing, and then a huge round of applause at the end of it. In contrast to Slovenia and, to a lesser extent, Croatia, Bosnia were definitely there to shove two fingers up at Serbia and say, here we are, and on the telly as well. The lyrics of the chorus prove that. All the pain in the world is in Bosnia. I'm staying to defy the fear. I'm not afraid to stand in front of the wall. I can sing, I can win. There was, to my knowledge, no interference from the EBU about the song being overly politicised, because as mentioned earlier, what the hell else would they sing about in the current climate? The juries, though, didn't give it any love, apart from in Ankara, where they chucked a Sympathy 12 their way. It only got another 15 from around Europe and ended up in 16th place with 27 points. The EBU and BHRT did the impossible. They got a song and a band out of an active war zone and into the contest itself, and it didn't win. Had there been a televote in 1993, who knows where we would have ended up, but we'd have still had the same old people going, they kind of put a chicken on stage and it would have won. Then, as now, that's clearly not the point. There's often a clamour from revisionists of Eurovision history for the good old days, especially where the BBC and the UK are concerned. People of a certain vintage believe that we should go back to a Friday night selection of eight songs with one, or possibly more than one, singer to get the average televoter of the UK to choose a song. I mean, what could possibly go wrong with that? Mr. Phil, our listener doesn't have time for another montage of so-called hits. Move on, please. The BBC, flushed with success from its old and new and tired approach of one singer and eight songs being reintroduced after it had been phased out because it was shit back in 1976, having hit the bullseye... No. Last year with this... concept has wheeled out again because why wouldn't you flog a dead horse that's breathing its last? After Michael Ball failed to win the 1992 contest because it was either an obnoxious oik or he failed to gain enough points your choice, the BBC decided to cast its net wider than the odd pre-piety musical star. Wikipedia says that they did the following and, reading it back in the cold light of day, well it's hardly cold as I've just said, it's scarcely believable. A short list of artists included by the BBC was presented to the heads of delegation of each participating country in the Eurovision Song Contest that ultimately selected the British entrant. The UK branch of the International Eurovision Fan Club had conducted a poll in late 1991 asking its members to nominate which singer they'd like to represent the UK in the contest. Sonia was the overwhelming winner of that poll announced in early 1992. And it took the BBC another 12 months to get Sonia on stage. Now, for those of you who don't know her, Sonia, Sonia Evans, from Skelmersdale near Liverpool, had burst onto the music scene with this.
unsurprisingly produced by Stock Aitken and Waterman as if you needed telly. Her first album, Everybody Knows, was released in 1990, and the five singles from that album all became top 20 hits in the UK, making Sonia the first British solo female artist to achieve this. By the time that 1993 had come round, she'd left her record company, released a barely noticeable second album, and her chart success was on the wane. Perfect then for the BBC's light entertainment department to come knocking on the door to try and revive what had been a stellar career. The BBC set up a national final to be shown on April the 9th, 1993, and heard on BBC Two. Wogan naturally fronted the show, and in the times before he came a virtually unwatchable arsehole towards the end of his career, was light and bouncy and the perfect genial host, and Sonia, it is said, sung the eight songs live at the recording of the show on the 8th, with the results and televote presented on the 9th. Here is a little reprise of all of those songs. There was only one song in the running in the final analysis, with Better the Devil You Know scoring over twice as many votes as the runner-up, Our World. Sonia looked ecstatic to sing this up-tempo number, reminiscent of her Stock Aitken and Waterman song, but with a classier edge to it. The long-haired songwriter, Dean Collinson, who looked no older than 20, it has to be said, went up and got the awards and everything was seemingly set fair to for victory in Mill Street. The real people in the bookies thought so too. It was installed at 4 to 1 second favourite behind Croatia of all things, and no, I really don't understand that even as I'm typing and saying it. The rehearsal seemed to have gone really well, with the YouTube video that I've seen of one of them looking really good. Sonia's a really relaxed performer, and that came across on stage on the Saturday night as well, except in the eyes and ears of two important groups. The first one was Irish commentator and, as previously discussed, Ireland's smuggest man, Pat Kenny who described the song to the Irish viewers as, and I quote, a mediocre kind of song, but Sonia gives it a terrific performance. Clearly, Pat was running down the chances of his own broadcaster's nearest rival. When I and our crumbling writing team sit down and looked at it, you know what? Maybe, and it sticks in my throat to say this, he might have been right. It's not the best song ever written, but it's frightfully well sung. The second set of people that didn't impress were those juries, the people with the real power. It only got four 12 points compared to Ireland's seven. It only got three 10 points. Norway and Ireland got four. It got six sets of low scores from Europe, too many to actually challenge. And although at the denouement of the voting, it was dramatic with it all coming down to the last point, had it have been done in order, the UK would have lost with the Irish seven points from Cyprus with two and a half juries to go. Sonia looked excited, the UK got a bit excited, and pushed the song to number 15 in the charts, but ultimately, Sonia's comeback was short-lived and so was the UK's. The fizz had gone out of the UK's Eurovision barrel and the bottom would need to be scraped a lot more in the intervening years because our natural advantage of singing it in English because hardly anyone else is, had just disappeared. You have one incoming message from Indecisive writing team. Message begins. Slight edit. Let's make option A. What's a Katri Helena? Do you want to reply? Oh, you arse. I've already recorded it. Replying. Oh, you arse. I've already recorded it. What? No. Oh, never mind. While they're there, see if you can get them to write something about the Netherlands without mentioning Paul DeLille. It's a little known fact, almost completely unknown. Well, 
totally unknown, including by me, that the Dutch language of Tule Lua was actually called Paul de Lille. Bizarrely, there's absolutely no corroborating evidence of that anywhere on the internet, but it definitely happened, really. National Song Festival with two A's, 1993, was actually a bit of a minor classic. Ruth Jackot was the partner of Humphrey Campbell, and had done sterling work on backing vocals in Malmö, and Noss, Avro, Tross, Tross, whoever the hell was doing it at the time, concluded that she was the girl for the big job, and awarded her an eight-song, one-singer national final. Here, have a quick recap of the eight songs with Paul DeLeo edited out, ideally. I told you, it's really solid. Even the one that came last, Ikhau Van Yau, is a lovely soft little ballad, and the winner in Dutch is much less ridiculous than it would have been in English. I mean, it's still quite ridiculous. Each new apple tree that's born doesn't naturally have ears to hear with, but through genetics we'll jolly well teach it to guarantee taste and quality. You lot have been around on you long enough to know that guaranteeing taste and quality simply isn't possible, genetics or not. But native language and live orchestra makes it so much better, as with all songs. Help me, I've been kidnapped by the OGAE. Humphrey returned the favour by doing some backing vocal duties, and the whole package could easily have justified an even better result than 6th place and 92 points. For me though, it's a sound effect of you choosing HIT. The next one's Croatia. Again, we've covered this in arse-aching detail in the 1993 pre-selection podcast, but just in case you forgot what I said, please give it up one last time for the last December me telling you about the first ever Dora. The contest ended up going to a final jury with this... by one point, which as most people know who watch Eurovision-related things, is never going to be enough, and Maya Blagdan's fate was confirmed when she scored just two from the last jury. She'd be back though to wreak her revenge on everyone's eardrums. That final jury gave the 12 points and the win to this. Sung by the group Put which I always thought sounded a bad name for a band until I realised it was Croatian for road and that still doesn't make it any better. The lyrics of the song pull on all the heartstrings. It's about someone called John who is 18 and has clearly died, presumably in the war, 
and how the angels are singing and Croatia's sky should never cry, again, presumably because they didn't want war. It might as well be saying, who do you think you're bombing Mother Serbia, because it's rather overtly going for the sympathy vote that Bosnia cleverly avoided. This was aimed not at being a carefully crafted song to show the world Croatia, but as the musical equivalent of a kid at school telling the dinner lady of her bully who nicked their lunch money. If they could have got away with saying fuck you in the English bit, they probably would have done as well. And that's the bit of the song that really, really annoys me and always has done. In a song contest where you had to be explicitly told for the last 15 years that English was hideous and bad if English wasn't your first language, those Croats, in another example of them taking the piss, decided to replace an entire chorus of the song with this. Those pesky kids got away with it too, because as far as I'm aware, the one phrase of another language repeated three times rule hadn't been formalised at this point, and I think that the envelope was woolly enough that it was just pushed that little bit too far. Our Taking a Break writing team have informed me that they are aghast that this song didn't go to win, and not only the pre-selection bit as well, but the whole contest. And despite the fact it makes my skin crawl, I can just about see what they're on. Thanks me, love you lots. It'll come as no surprise to anyone with a thought process that HRT continued their look at me it's all about me shtick on stage in Mill Street. The whole thing is staged to elicit maximum guilt from the juries by the group literally begging with their eyes which sear into your soul to overlook the fact that the song itself is not a masterpiece of songwriting but if you take the lyrics away and put the melody in a music box it could be something that your gran would like from about 1936. The juries were not fooled. It's called 31 points, including an 8 from of all places the United Kingdom. Sympathy was clearly in very short supply around Europe and it ended up in 15th place. I suspect the Croats were the only one of the three new republics that was asked about where they finished, because they were the ones that had clearly tried, and failed, to manipulate the jurors of Europe. Another internal here for Spain, so our weighty document of record, Eurovision Network News, supplied by our slightly dusty writing team, gets a look in here again. The singer, Eva Santa Maria, had been selected by TVE to represent Spain. Funny that. She'll be singing hombres, translated as men. No, not that one. No, not that version either. This one would be written by Carlos Toro. Carlos the Bull. Once upon a time there was a little white bull. Very sad because he was a little white bull. Little white bull. Born in Cadiz, Eva is the eldest of four children, and between the ages of eight and 14, she dedicated herself to ballet and motor racing. Now, I'd love to see Lewis Hamilton doing a plie. But thankfully, from the ages of 14 to 19, she decided to be all Spanish and danced flamenco. As a singer, she won televised and non-televised singing contests. You know, those are the two options. Recorded albums and performed in TV programmes which seemed too boring to go and research or check. This is one of those songs I've never got my head round. Checking the lyrics out, it's basically Eva saying all men are bastards and demonising all of us before saying men and women in intimacy are like two lighthouses in the dark. And clearly not those two either. So basically, Eva, you don't know what on earth to make of the male of the species. Welcome to the club. 
The tune is seemingly the same phrase of music repeated over and over until the timer hits three minutes. And it just grates on my nerves and it always makes me skip this song when I watch 1993. But on this occasion, I couldn't do that, otherwise we'd just have a big silence here. Although that would be better than this song in my opinion. It also, my ashen-faced writing team tells me, classifies as rap with her speaking some of the words because Eva is sick and tired of the tune herself. All of this is topped off with some energetic backing dancers who are trying to distract you from what's going on. The jury's also ignored it in the main too, apart from Malta who thought it was worth 8 points and Finland who somehow thought it was worth 10. It picked up some more middling points and somehow ended up in 11th place for 58 points. I don't get it. There's an old proverb in the Coklove residence, if you've got now to say, say now. And that's pretty much what my thoughts on Cyprus are now that I've sat down to script this bit of the podcast. I've been to Cyprus. It has the strongest industrial strength coffee that money can buy. It has a weird arse alphabet with letters that bear little resemblance when put together to actual words. It has an infrastructure that, once finished, might actually be half decent. The whole place runs on the concept of manana, but clearly in Greek. And if I'm telling you all about this, and then telling you it has some lovely beaches as well, and clearly stalling for time to try and stretch this bit out so we can move on to Israel, which is frankly much more exciting. Mr. Phil, it's literally two adequately handsome boys telling each other not to stop for three minutes. Is that not your thing? Look, Alexia, I've just about had enough of you outing me to all and sundry, but as you, the soulless voice of my conscious, point out, yes, that is very much my thing, thanks for asking. The only problem here is that the Phil Blandometer Mark III has just exploded in a fit of rage rarely seen since Sophia Vossu minced off stage two years ago. They had a national final in Cyprus, a rare thing indeed, and by hearing and looking at some of the compositions that were entered, it's hard to believe that these eight were in the top 10% of all the entries submitted. In third place, we have the perennial backing singer and Eurovision competitor, Alex Panayi, singing this. <laughs> Two years before he grew his hair out and sung the infinitely better. And I'm also pretty sure he's been involved in about 30 Cypriot songs in all of Eurovision history. The runner-up was this. Which, surprisingly, isn't half bad at all, but is, it can be said, a typical big Greek ballad by a woman-type person who is surprisingly live as opposed to being the big Greek woman that I actually expected when I heard this song before seeing it. Yeah, I'll grant you, that's a backhanded compliment, but you search this out on YouTube and tell me I'm wrong. I'll wait. The jurors, though, did indeed go for the two boys telling each other not to stop, but something, and I don't know what, tells me that me Stamadas was a bit of an afterthought. Three minutes of this song in National Final are painful. The boys come running down the steps at the back of the stage after the saxophonist from every 80s song ever plays the intro and then they proceed not to look into the camera or interact with each other for the first verse before putting their mics into the mic stand, not a euphemism, and turn to face each other and sing to each other in a very awkward way. Now I get the idea that two lads singing a duet wasn't on vogue in 1993, especially in Cyprus. But it's safe to say that Zimbalakis and Van Beek are less Mahmoud and Blanco and more Arthur Mullard and Hilda Baker. Freeze, I'm Mar Baker. Put your hands in the air. Give us all your money. Get off. There's only a thrippy bit there. She was the meanest cat. She knows it more about her. She was the meanest cat. She, she really moved them down. She had no heart at all. No, no, no heart at all. Oh, she was really tough She left her husband flat He wasn't tough enough She took her boys along Cause they were mean and strong Ma, 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 ma. ma Baker, she taught her 
As a composition, it also seems half-finished rather than half-arsed, and there could be an argument that the composers put in a demo and hoped it would do well, and then found themselves winning it by accident, because I really don't know how the jurors that night placed this at the top, but they did, and CYBC must have immediately panicked. As an aside here, one of the composers should know what a song sounds like. He was part of the group Island back in 1981, for heaven's sake. Someone, somewhere, performed a minor miracle on this song to take it from half arse to almost fully formed in the few weeks between selection and preview video, and that's no exaggeration. It would have only been three to four weeks at most before the final version got released into the wild. But that was never going to be enough time. Even the introduction of the lush hair to George Theophanos, husband-to-be to Every Dickie, who sung backing vocals on the national final, coming in to arrange the final song couldn't save this. He introduced backing singers who actually could sing, a phrase I wrote before I realised who his wife was going to be and what she did, and I still haven't changed it. It helped the song a bit, but in truth, it's not a showcase of songwriting or singing that Europe were expecting. It's certainly a downside better than the song in inverted commas that the boys presented on that presumably very muggy night in Nicosia, but even that's damning it with faint praise. Something the Greek jury did too, because to the surprise of no one, they gave it 10 points. It got 5 from the UK and a 2 from Denmark, and they seemed like pity points if we're being honest. 17 total to finish in a dismal 19th place. And to think it could have been a lot worse, well, not much worse. Also, as an aside, have you ever noticed how this bit of the song... Sounds remarkably like the theme from Red Dwarf. No, me neither. Two songs to go and it's Israel now. This song was the first video that I did on site and you all watched it. No, you didn't watch it, did you? Because you're all a bunch of bastards. So I'm going to tell you this story again. And this time I'm going to do it word for word, straight from the pages of And The Conductor Is, a website for about, well, conductors. But before then, this is the song that was on the other side of the tape from Annie Cotton. When I mangled the tape from the last podcast, oh, do keep up. Are you sitting uncomfortably? Fabulous, then I'll begin. The writer, Shaiki Pykoff, starts this off. It's a long and complicated story. It's a good job you're sitting down, then. To begin with, I didn't want to participate in the 1993 Kadam at all. A couple of days before the submission deadline, Sarah Lesharon called me. She's quite famous in Israel, being a TV personality and working across the country to organise sing-along concerts of folk music, but she isn't a singer. I knew her very well, as I'd been her music teacher in the Ashdod Yaakov Kibbutz in the early 1960s. On the phone, she told me she wanted to participate in the Kadam Eurovision, not even to win, just to be there and compete. Honestly, I wasn't very keen on the idea, as I'm not the kind of composer to participate in a competition without any chance to win. Imagine, I once did four song festivals in one year and won them all. With Sarah, it'd be impossible to win, as she doesn't remotely have the vocal abilities required to be a soloist. I told her that the Kadam was a competition for 12 young people jumping around on stage like madmen, with the best of them being selected for the Eurovision Song Contest, not exactly the environment tailor-made for a 45-year-old woman. Sarah, however, did not take no for an answer and kept begging me, claiming it would be the dream of her life to be in Kadam with a song written by me. She even wanted to finance part of the project from her own money. In the end, Pykoff succumbed to Sarah Le Charon's pleas and composed Shiru. Yeah, I agreed to write the song, he admits on the condition that I was given permission to form a group of young people around Sarah to do the singing. I explicitly told her that if she opened her mouth, she would kill the song. After she'd agreed, I wrote the music to the lyrics by Yoram Taharlev, which were already there and given to me over the phone by Sarah. Adapting the original lyrics somewhat here and there, I managed to compose a tune in a matter of minutes. Sarah liked it instantly. Yeah, of course she did. Subsequently, I brought together five young singers, three girls and two boys, for the vocal group. Israel's a small country and, at that time, I had ample contacts to find suitable candidates. Some of them were from Kibbutzim, others simply from Tel Aviv. In the studio, they did the main vocals. Sarah did no more than backing them up in the choruses. In the Kadam, she was at the piano, 
but the focus of the camera was on the vocal group, therefore we managed to win. Now, I'm not going to regale you with the usual review of the Kadam here, but you've really got to listen just to this bit. Anyway, back to Shanky Pykov. He, Sarah Le Charon and the Lakrit Shiru group travelled to the Eurovision Song Contest in Mill Street. Soon, disagreement broke out in the Israeli delegation during rehearsals. After the first rehearsal, Pykov said, we sat with the woman who was the director of the contest. All of a sudden, Sarah had an attitude behaving as if she was the main singer and the five others merely backed her up. For that reason, she claimed the camera should focus on her. In doing so, she completely ignored the ideas we'd given to the Irish organisation about what we wanted the stage presentation to look like. In Eurovision, music is only 10%. The visual aspect is far more important. So I went to the director afterwards and talked to her in private, explaining that Sarah was there for other reasons than her vocal qualities. By that time, the director was very annoyed by the whole situation, but she agreed to change the camera approach after all and focus on the group rather than on Sarah, who was at the piano in the back. This should have been the end of the discussion, but it wasn't. When we did the next rehearsal, we were extremely surprised to see that all the cameras were focused on Sarah once again. What had happened? Soon it came about Sarah had given a phone call to the director and told her that she was the singer of the group after all. There we were. It was obviously impossible to ask the director to adapt the camera work again, as she was very aggressive towards us the first time, and even claimed she's excluded us from the competition if we bothered her again about the camera approach. From that moment onwards, Pykov concludes, I knew we were doomed. Sarah had killed everything. She sang too loud and out of tune. I telephoned the head of entertainment at Israeli TV in Jerusalem and told him I wanted to come back to Israel. Sarah had gone crazy and I couldn't do anything about it, so why bother staying? The head of entertainment, however, implored me not to leave Ireland because he was afraid it would cause an enormous uproar in the Israeli media. In the end, Shaiki Pykov decided to stay, but was certain they would lose. It hurt a lot as he composed a wonderful song which, under normal conditions, would have been amongst the first three, he says. I hate to disagree with the venerable Mr. Pycock, but I'm not sure in which alternate dimension this was going to get more poison than I caught on. Now remember, this was on the other side of the cassette tape that fucked up in the first half, and despite loving Annie to death, 15-year-old me absolutely loved this song too, but it's taken me until, oh, now minutes, to realise that it's because of the car crash vocal rather than the quality of the song. The final song of the evening was destined to be the Norwegian song, which, as we all discover, is a seriously troubling song in many ways. But before I get on the phone to social services, again, let's take a look back at the Melody Grand Prix. I listened to the eight songs and messaged our decaffeinated writing team and said, and I quote, MTP 1993 is a bit shit, isn't it? To which they replied with several question marks. Then I actually listened to the songs again and realised that, no, Phil, you are bad and wrong. It's actually not that bad. I mean... Any song contest that has a Tor Enderson triumphantly returning Mary Ethel Troen some swingers And a not dead yarn tiger. Can't be all that bad. The winner, though, was none of those pieces of fluff, but was this piece of mournfulness.
when it gets to the chorus, the supposed best bit, we have our first, but by no means last at Eurovision, piece of audience participation, literally the audience clapping along with the chorus. Something which is, totes normal these days, but back in 1993 was new and novel. repeated when they got to Mill Street and yes I've left out a massive wad of story here because it's not important. What is important is that the audience in the grain silo decided to do the very same thing. However, the difference there is, predominantly, they were Irish and didn't grasp the lyrics of the chorus. Alexia, take it away. All my thoughts, they fly to you. All my dreams are open. In all my rooms, I can only see you. You are lying in my bed sleeping. So on the face of it, it's a song about Celia and her significant other being together, which is fine. Except that Celia's 16 and the song was written by her own human father. Yes, that's right. The songwriter Bjorn Eric Vega decided it would be a cracking little idea to write a very dark love song about his daughter and her significant other sleeping in their bed together. Not that bad, I hear you cry. Could have written it for anyone, now nah, yes, but let's delve deeper into those lyrics, shall we? And as you stand there pretending nothing has happened, afraid to meet my glance, no one can see it if only you and I know it. As you gently touch me on the hand as you walk past me, no one must see it, only you and I know it. And it's her father writing these lyrics. Now far, far be it from me to suggest anything dodgy going on in deepest Norway in the depths of winter 1992, but there does seem to be circumstantial evidence of something odd going on. The juries, like the audience, totally ignored that and saw the song as a secret love song sung between a sweet little Norwegian girl and a twee voice. Either that, or they ignored the elephant in the room and scored it very highly indeed. Greece, Finland and Croatia gave it 12 points, and four more countries gave it 10, plus a wealth of other scores led to an impressive total of 120 in fifth place. Even now I still feel a little bit uneasy about it, though maybe I should stop looking into these things so much. Now before we pack up and creep gently into the night, so to speak, I have to address something that I've mentioned earlier but not entirely explained. 1994. Mr Phil, we've already done 1994 as a podcast and your listener hasn't heard that yet? Yes, quite right Alexia, well done. Well this is the perfect place to explain what the fucking fuck was going to happen between May 1993 and April the 30th 1994. The contest had grown to 29 potential entrants. BEBU had to expand the contest from its theoretical maximum of 22 to 25 in order to facilitate that pre-selection that we've been harping on about for the last two podcasts. The question remained what on earth was going to happen going forward. The EBU press conference in Mill Street gave us some answers, and some massive questions. Firstly, the contest would, in the future, not exceed 22 competitors, and in order to estimate the number of entrants for 1994, Broadcasters were invited to indicate if they were actually going to take part. PEBU got 32 responses. Christian Clausen, no, I hardly remember him either, put forward three proposals. Firstly, based upon the results of 1993, the country placed 1st to 19th gain automatic entry to the 1994 contest. The countries placed in 20th to 22nd place would miss out on the 1994 Eurovision altogether and come back in 1995. Slovenia, Israel and Belgium, along with the seven other countries that made up the original 32, would take part in a 1994 pre-selection event which would not be televised. After the 1994 contest, the top 16 countries, plus Luxembourg, Turkey and Denmark, who missed out on 1994, would compete in 1995. Plus, the top three from a 1995 pre-selection made up of the seven relegated countries, plus the three that missed out, with, presumably, the bottom three of 1995 going into the 1996 round, and so on and so forth. It all seemed, according to Eurovision Network News, that the extremely complicated it's a knockout crossword going for gold format that the following years would have would be the most likely. Thankfully for us, someone, somewhere, clearly shouted very loudly that the Eurovision Song Contest wasn't some sort of convoluted version of the 3-2-1 clue, that you couldn't play your joker to get double points, and that, in fact, the viewers needed a clear and concise way of knowing who the hell was going to take part without having CSE algebra and calculus in order to work it out. They decided to do something simple, thank the Lord. 
they expanded the contest permanently to 25, relegated the bottom 7 from this year, and had a straight promotion and relegation system exchanging them for the 7 that didn't miss out this time round. BEBU would revisit the Euro Radio idea for 1996, but instead of broadcasting that pre-selection, they sent the juries a C90 cassette tape with all the songs on. Germany, not for the first time, would not be best pleased. 